Welcome to a new episode of the Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. Before we dive in in uh, today's episode, I wanted to ask you uh, to subscribe to our channel. It could be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, we're everywhere. Why? Because every single week there are fantastic guests coming on the podcast and notification can help you just to be updated on the new episodes out there. Today we have Paul Bakaus, that is the head of Creator Sakaji. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. How are you, first of all? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? It's, it's good. As I was saying before, like, you know, during our pre-call, it's sunny in New York. And when it's sunny in New York, I'm happy. Especially <laughs> like, you know, when January, February, March, if it is already like sunny, I cannot complain. I know that for some people, like, you know, especially people that live maybe in LA and they are used to or in Miami, it's just the basics. For people in New York, it's already a big thing. So... I cannot complain. So I'm happy, you know, it's, it's a good starting, uh, you know, good way to start the, the week. So um, people, people outside of California often don't know that winter depression is a thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And yeah, I, I also lived in Copenhagen, Denmark for like almost four years. So, uh, you know, I know a lot mm. about that, the winter and the depression and, and so on, and especially in the Nordics, but let's talk about positive things and interesting things today. Um, I'm really, uh, you know, happy that you're on board today because, uh, you have a lot of knowledge about, you know, not just like the creative web in general, like, you know, the internet and you saw it like changing so much. So first of all, why don't you tell us a bit more about yourself and your career? How did you start it? You have like, a, apart from what you're doing now on Ko- in Koji, you are like experienced at you know, Google and Zynga, so much more. So who is Paul? Like, how did you build so far, like, you know, your career? Sure. Yeah. Uh, happy to share a little bit. I, you know, have been having a pretty unusual career, I guess, in that I uh, expanded and jumped around quite a bit. So I started uh, as a software engineer, as a front-end developer in particular, and very clearly, very quickly realized, this is like around 2005 or so, pretty quickly realized that there weren't enough frameworks and libraries and toolkits out there to build uh, really high-quality web apps and websites. Uh, and so from the get-go, I was looking out for those kind of things. I started to very quickly dabble in open source development and started to build user interface libraries. The uh, one that really became quite popular at the time uh, that I built together with a team of volunteers was jQuery UI. Uh, and it was a uh, UI toolkit that a lot of people used to build websites uh, that made building UI a lot more accessible uh, for, for a lot of people. And this was sort of the Web 2.0 wave uh, as we know it. And then... Mm-hmm. Later down the road, with that having worked, I thought, well, maybe I can do the same thing again uh, with a different type of thing on the web. You know, I, I really believed in the open web and its capabilities and power. So I thought maybe beyond what we can do on the web 2.0, many responsive applications, what if we bring games to the web? So uh, together with a friend of mine, we built what we think was the, the world's first graphical game engine for the web. Uh, it was like fully isometric, lots of different people moving around, like lots of game objects. It was a really interesting challenge to make that work. This was sort of uh, around the same time the uh, you know the first generations of iPhones arrived, right? And then also the iPad. I remember it being quite interesting challenge to make this work on Safari on the original iPad, uh, which had lots of bugs, was really low powered. Um, but we sort of made it work. And uh, back in Europe at the time, we couldn't find any investors that would invest in 
what they call something that isn't business proven. And so our idea was fundamentally new that uh, risk averse investors mm -hmm, weren't biting. So on the other hand, we had companies like Microsoft and Zynga and a bunch of others really expressing interest in licensing the engine that didn't really exist yet. It was a prototype. Um, but ultimately, we went through an acquire with Zynga after just a few months on the market. And then at Zynga, I tried to make what we called at the time HTML5 gaming a thing. So like for a couple of years, I led their R&D department uh, as a studio CTO, as we called it, uh, bringing a lot of innovative new technology um, to market. Yeah. Um, and uh, we can, of course, talk about that episode uh, more. But just, I guess, to finish that first arc, uh, that didn't work out so well as I hoped it would be. You know, some of the technology made it into popular games, but it didn't create that kind of web revolution towards gaming that I hoped it would. You know, I hoped that the whole web would become gaming ready and we would see lots lots of games being built on the web. But uh, for a number of reasons, it was too early. Mm -hmm. This was around 2000. Do you think that it was not just like maybe... Let's say that society was already maybe sometimes a technic technical gap, right? Or like, as you said before, maybe the machines are not that powerful yet to, for example, run things. Do you think that is like a combination of both? What was the big challenge for you at the time? Yeah, it was definitely a combination. You know, it was challenging to get, to get the hardware to do what we wanted. However, I will say if there are any types of software engineers that are good at making very not so powerful hardware do the things that they want, it would definitely be game engines. Right. So game developers have been doing this on all generations of consoles before. So they are used to squeezing the last bit of performance out of hardware. So that wasn't actually the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge was by far distribution and monetization. At the time, the web didn't have, I mean, there was no payment APIs. There was nothing like that. The web, you know, Stripe wasn't a thing yet. So the web didn't really have any built-in monetization capabilities. You would either have to go through a terrible certification process to take credit card payments. But then, you know, back then we had the first waves of social games that would take microtransactions. You can't, you can't have somebody pay 20 cents per item or something and then, you know, have that hit of a credit card fee on top of it. So that didn't work. So the, the ecosystem to accept payments just wasn't there. As well as discovery was a problem because... You know, for content to be discovered on the web uh, is extremely important, of course, right? And if you are creating a blog or something along those lines, that's easily crawlable by search engines like Google. However, if, if you have a fully graphical game, Google didn't have any capabilities of parsing that, right? Of understanding what's there. So like people wouldn't go to Google and say like, I, I need a good game, uh, type that in and expect to find links that they can click that lead to an actual game. Oh yeah, sometimes maybe even if you have like a good idea, it might be too early, right? To enter a new market for all these reasons, right? Uh, the discoverability, the, the usage of the people, and even just like overall the reason that like, you know, if, if, like, you know even if you're like early adopters, they might not be enough to have like the critical mass to go to the next level in terms of a specific te technology, right? So we also in the, in the past, historically speaking, many uh, new players that enter a new market and not just because they were the first one, it, it, it meant that became, they became like the number one in the game. Some of them, they started, they failed, and someone else, actually maybe 10 years later, 
they use the same concept, right? But just because maybe the technology was better, there was like no more powerful machines, people were ready, right? This, this is what is happening now for social commerce and for other other things, right? They are trying now, uh, they're not like that, you know, like successful, but you never know, maybe in five years, right? Things are gonna change. So, and yeah. and, and and that is what we did with, with Zing. And before we go to what we're doing now, we also work for, for Google, right? And then if I'm correct, you spend like time in, in building like tools that other developers are, are see using on a daily basis. What is right. what is that experience that like? Can you can you share a bit more because it's different, right? Like something Zinger is more like game based, and then we have Google that has the search engine, but then a plethora of tools that are, some of them are, are open to the public, and some others are all used internally. What was the experience there for you? Yeah, that was a quite humbling experience. Yeah, if you're working on tools that get used by millions of developers every day, you know any move that you make. Uh, mm -hmm. is immediately very, very uh, apparent to everybody. And so you have to be extremely careful. I mean, like I realized this in my time doing open source before where like, you know, one wrong, one buggy uh, commit would break the internet, you know, uh, or at least a large, large portion yeah. of the internet. That's pretty scary. But with tools too, uh, you know, I use the Chrome DevTools and this, the Chrome DevTools, if you're not familiar, they are the types of tools that every web developer uses to interact with a page or front end or sort so so they debug but they also for yes. instance preview it how it looks like on mobile um, in the browser and so they're built into chrome mm -hmm. and uh, most web developers use it as a daily driver while they're developing so uh, i've been using them for a very long time before i joined google i even filed bug reports at the time um, and so the team that i worked with at google then remembered me from those times oh, wow. when I wasn't at Google, which is really funny. Um, okay. But I was already a very invested person uh, in that space for a long time. And so at Google, it uh, was very natural for me to become the uh, developer advocate that you know is the uh, mainly responsible for driving the success of those Chrome Dev tools. And so for instance, we brought features to market like the device mode that allows you to do responsive design or you know added things that are making the tool more friendly for designers and for a broader set of audiences, which I was also always very, very interested in. So we had a, a pilot that we called DevTools for Designers, and it brought to life things like color pickers and animation tools and stuff like that. Nice. It's interesting how you went from like being an active user, even outside the organization, and then you know getting active in working on. And that happens sometimes with communities, right? You're outside. You do it because you like it, you love it, then potentially you might also get into. So it's an interesting story there. So we, we said about a bit um, about your past. What are you up now? Uh, tell us a bit more about Koji. What are you doing in Koji? Um, how did it start? Uh, you, you told me already, like, you know, when we quickly chat that it started with another idea, then it was a sort of pivot. Um, and, and also in the past years, you know, like Koji received like investments and I saw it um, kind of everywhere, uh, TechCrunch and some other like, you know, big publications. So tell, tell us a bit more about the story of Koji. Hey, quick break. This podcast is hosted by the Influencer Marketing Factory. We are an influencer marketing agency that helps brands and companies engage with Gen Z and millennials on social media. We take care of influencer identification, storytelling, creativity, negotiation, contracting, campaign management, error analysis, in-depth reporting, content boosting, and much, much more. Are you interested in learning more? You can find us at theinfluencermarketingfactory.com or you can Google The Influencer Marketing Factory. Yeah, of course, yeah. At Koji, I kind of uh, continued my journey into the creator economy because 
you know, and I, I promise I'm gonna only gonna stay in the past for for a second here. But at Google, after a while, I realized that uh, there was a big gap in how we approach outreach to communities. You know, we had all these developer relations teams that would talk to developers, and uh, the idea was if we make developers happy, they will improve the ecosystems like the open web for us, right? But we didn't have anything, any team that would speak to content creators. And the content creators that are very important on the web for Google are the bloggers. And so uh, at Google, I, I saw that uh, and I thought, this is kind of crazy. Why are we not doing anything about this? And so I created a sister organization from developer relations that I called Creator Relations. That was my first deep dive into the creator economy and really understanding content ecosystems of the world. And so I developed a pretty good bird's eye view uh, and had hundreds of meetings with all sorts of creators, TikTok creators, YouTube creators, you know, from five to uh, 50 million followers, you know, <laughs> any kind of creator size. At Google, unfortunately, it's, you know, that's the curse of any big company. It's quite hard to move fast. So once you have uh, uh, multiple layers of abstraction, organizational overhead, it's very difficult to move into a new direction. And so uh, I became increasingly frustrated about our inability to ship features and product quickly. Um, at the time, I uh, created a news series on the Google for Creators YouTube channel where I covered the creator economy at large. So one of the companies that I found that was innovating at a pretty rapid pace was Koji, the company that I now work for. So I saw them launching new features for their LinkedIn bio at the time at a rapid pace. I thought, this is how are they doing this? This is kind of crazy. And so when I jumped on a call with them to find out, they told me all about their platform uh, was all about subtractive development. Um, that's the idea of like not starting from scratch every time you want to build a new feature, but taking what's there and then uh, just changing a little bit about the thing and turning it into something new. And I thought I was pretty brilliant and uh, decided to join them on that quest. Now, to your point, we did change what we're doing because one of the things that we found, uh, if you remember like early 2021, Koji was really advertising itself a powerful link in bio. And so we were positioning us against Linktree and all sorts of other link in bios that started to appear. It was a pretty crowded market, but our our premise was, hey, we're not just a link in bio. We're a platform that has all these little, we call them mini apps at the time, that allow you to do a ton of different things. It allows you to monetize your premium content. Uh, it allows you to collect money for your eBooks, for your courses. Now, one thing that we found out is that that didn't really make sense for every creator out there. There's a lot of creators who, if you tell them, hey, you want to become a content marketer overnight, they roll their eyes because in order to be truly successful selling your own digital products, you have to be a good marketer. That's the lesson that we learned over and over and over. With every successful creator that we have on our platform, we're seeing the same kind of thing. Like they are the ones that consistently create, let's say, short form video where they're promoting their goods. That makes sense, right? But if you are a creator that is in this game just to tell the best stories, right? Become the next YouTube like Steven Spielberg, then that's not what you want to hear. Like you don't want somebody to come around and say like, stop your path towards fame, just do this instead. Like here's a social media marketing loop that works and makes you money because you're kind of destroying the dream, to be honest. And so uh, we realized that for this large segment of creators and influencers, as we call them, 
that path just didn't make any sense. What we also realized, though, is that the creative economy is much larger than just the creative economy as we defined it right now. If you think about it, there's all these people that create on social media that wouldn't call themselves creators in real life, right? So you have like people like fitness coaches, for instance. My, my test usually, I don't know if I mentioned this to you in the past, but like my test is usually like you go to a cocktail party, uh, imaginary in your head, right? You go to a cocktail party and like you ask somebody what they do. If they say, I'm a creator, then currently they're not in our, in our ICP, in our ideal customer profile. Um, if they're saying, I'm a fitness coach, then they totally are, because that means that they are very focused on selling something most of the time. They are offering something like courses and eBooks around coaching, et cetera, around fitness, uh, supplement products. So usually fitness coaches on Instagram, for instance, are always selling something. And creator is just a role to them. They create because they have to. Um, they wouldn't think of themselves as only a creator. Creator is an important role that they wear when they need to. And so for us, we realized there's this expanded creator economy that is a much greater fit for the types of templates, as we call them now, the types of mini apps that we were building. Because one of the strengths of Koji is that we have this really breadth of options for you to sell on social media. First of all, absolutely interesting when you say about, you know, looking for professionals that also create content. They're similar to another, uh, another couple of episodes that we recorded in the past where we said that more companies are becoming media companies. So I'm talking about like normal brands that are getting into the content creation because they have to offer more, but their core business is still selling a product, right? And then on top, they create a story. The same, what is interesting that you said is that these people are professionals and also it happens that they are also right using content creation. That reminds me similarly, and I know that we already discussed it when, when, when we met about how you might see your, your like role, uh, sort of like you know model similar to Canva, the, instead of competing against Photoshop, right? Because people with Photoshop, you might call them like you know digital artists or graphic designers, for example. But you're not looking for those, right? You're looking for people that use Canva that usually might be not just social media create, uh, sorry, like managers, for example, but even like the professionals that don't have like that skills, right, to use Photoshop but they still want to create templates. They want to create an easy way to create banners, videos online. Am I, am I right in, in making this sort of comparison? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Canva and about their business strategy because they could have chosen to build a new Photoshop-like tool on the browser, right? And compete with the same segment, but they didn't. Instead, they said, hey, look, there's, there are all these people for whom Photoshop is total overkill, right? Who need something to make designs, but, uh, but they don't have the time or the capacity or the bandwidth to learn Photoshop inside out, right? So I think that's their audience. And, uh, and they found all these marketers, they found like a large segment of, of people that will use ready-made templates to do something, to create something that's good enough. Yes, it might not be pixel perfect as a professional would do in Photoshop, but that's also not what's necessary most of the time. If you're creating a flyer for your social media, uh, for like, I don't know, a party invite or something. Um, that's all you need. You need a bunch of really good templates. And then, uh, you know, in a couple of minutes, you have something with Canva. So the same way, that really inspired us in, in some ways, right? Because we figured something like that also doesn't truly exist for e-commerce. I mean, you have Shopify, for instance, right? But Shopify is a pretty advanced solution for most people. Um, there's a lot of people that are intimidated by creating a storefront in the first place. Then you have 
the very simple solutions like just getting Venmo or you know getting money via Cash App and PayPal. But then you have all this logistics overhead on top, like fulfillment, uh, management of customers, etc. Like that's too simple. But in the middle, you know, you have platforms like Gumroad. But Gumroad, every listing looks the same. I mean, I love Gumroad. I think they're on a great mission. But I wouldn't say they're particularly optimized for social media sharing. And so we figured there was a space here to carve out that is essentially the Canva for e-commerce. You know, it's a it's taking a similar approach to Let's not create a big storefront because let's be honest, it's 2023. Most of the traffic will probably not come through SEO optimized storefronts through social through uh, search engines, but instead will come from social media. So therefore, we need to connect whatever we're building to social media. Um, so with Koji, you can create all these little mini, we call them Kojis, but mini storefronts or landing pages oftentimes that do one, t one thing at a time, but do that really well. Right. So they're meant to convert, let's say, somebody to a course or an ebook or, you know, digital brushes, something along those lines. But it's not one big storefront. It's really made for that social media set. It's like components, right, that you can build whatever you like uh, in an easy way, right? And, and, and so do you think that now social commerce is Koji's core um, for the next future? Do, do, are, you, are you going like, I don't want to say 100% on it, but... Uh, if you had to choose, would you say that it's social commerce then? Yes, that's the idea. Uh, now, Koji itself, we didn't deprecate the link in bio. You can still use it and it might still be beneficial. We also still have all the other templates that will help you, I don't know, uh, collect your affiliates or do other things like that. So uh, collect tips, for instance. So we didn't deprecate any of those. You can still use them. We still think of Koji as a larger platform, but the focus for us is definitely commerce. Uh, that really also is the way that we think we can benefit most to our sellers. And of course, uh, we can also benefit from it uh, through a ref share model. Uh, so, so yeah, we're pretty bullish about it. And what do you think are the challenges for social commerce right now? Because for, sort of for me, for example, Anytime that I see, um, first of all, I would say that there is confusion about social commerce, right? Still, I would say that many people call it like that, even if you maybe had to go through, you know, like a third party website or like you go to an embedded browser to put your information again, like there is a lot of friction and on, on, the, on the funnel and there is still confusion on what is social commerce. In your opinion, what are the challenges and how would you and how do you want to solve them? It's a great question. You know, I think most people define social commerce as the sort of affiliate marketing on social media. Um, you know, I think of it as a bit more broadly. And actually, the, the whole affiliate thing is not the one that I'm most interested in or that Koji is most interested in. Um, for us, it's really, we're trying to reach people that want to sell their own products on social media. So that's really, when, when I say social commerce, that's what I mean or what I'm interested in. And I know that's not everyone's definition of social commerce. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I think I think one of the big bottlenecks is definitely friction. Um, we need to, and this is the problem with big storefronts, right? If you, if you click on a Shopify link uh, in an Instagram story and you get to this desktop optimized big website um, with lots and lots of different options, you know, it's like the Netflix thing. You have too many options. You have, uh, you can't make a choice instantly, right? Um, Ideally, the simpler, the better. Like you don't want to have a link and buy on front. You don't want to have a storefront. You want to go to a detailed landing page of that one item that I'm currently advertising. 
uh, and in a very frictionless process of acquiring that item. I think there's a lot of education to be done still to teach people that this is this might be better, right? I think if you think about the biggest challenges out here, in my opinion, it's educational because uh, content marketing, really what you need is not something that everybody naturally steers towards to learn, like if you're a fitness coach or uh, another type of creator. So I think that's a big challenge. And talking about content creation, right? Uh, I've been asking this, of course, to everyone lately on the podcast because everyone is talking about AI, content generation, where are we going in terms of, you know, um, again, uh, someone is an influencer. If you're an influencer, you're also a content creator. If you're a content creator, doesn't mean that you're necessarily an influencer. If you are a professional, doesn't mean that, you know, like there are all these clusters that sometimes they touch, like, you know, uh, to each other, like sometimes instead they're like, you know, separate type of people. Almost everyone could potentially use like, you know, AI and new content tools, right? To generate things. And again, it's used by people are tech savvy and from people that really, you know, have never touched like, you know, code in their life, this can generate new things. So first of all, in your opinion, where are we with AI? Some people are saying it's just the beginning. Some others are saying it's scary. Some others feel like there is a big opportunity. What do you think about it? Where are we in the, I would say, era of AI, first of all? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I have so much to say about this because I've been diving into the AI rabbit hole for a long time now. Um, you know, the first thing I'll say is that, yes, there are certain ways AI isn't ready. For instance, generative uh, AI or LLMs like ChatGPT, for instance, can't yet create factually accurate stuff, for example, very easily. So like it will always make mistakes right now because it generates things. And so there are some companies that are working on improving that, but you can't always fully trust it. However, if you're creating entertaining content, that doesn't really matter. If you're creating entertaining content as a creative tool, it's actually reliably good. And... Uh, uh, I think most people don't realize how far we already are. I think, you know, people think, well, you can make small images with this, generate maybe a script here and there. But you can actually talk to GPT, for instance, ChatGPT, and start with, you know, give me some ideas for video, um, all the way to, uh, okay, I have, a, I have fully realized video script. I have, like, stable diffusion or mid-journey prompts for all the images, for all the B-roll that I want to create. <laughs> Literally can copy and paste it into Stable Diffusion. Um, and I think it we're very, very close to getting full video done. Uh, I think it's coming sooner than most people expect. But the the interesting thing is what will that what will how will the world shift, right? What change? And if you look at the open web, for instance, the open web already has had this problem for the last couple of years. Like there are all these companies out hmm. there, like Jasper uh, and Copy AI and and then like traditional SEO yeah. companies that would you know in many of those cases you could for instance you could go and Gumroad today I saw this the other day you can pay two hundred fifty bucks and you will buy a ready made blog with a thousand articles like you now have a website overnight with a thousand articles pre written that you can put out there on the web that's kind of crazy if you think about it right yeah I mean that that means that on the web we already have this problem of like the web being bombarded with low quality AI generated content or even content that is not gen AI generated by, hmm. but written by cheap labor. Right. And so yeah, Google, is, of course, and other search engines have been fighting this trend for a while. And 
if you hear Google talk about this, they want to focus on content that you know is made for you. And so they don't really care whether it's written by AI or not, but it needs to be high quality. I think that's a good approach. But interestingly, this problem didn't really arrive on social media until recently. So like until maybe last year, nobody thought you could generate an Instagram account that's completely fake. All the images are fake. The person is fake. <laughs> you know, whether traveling is fake, the scripts are fake, the comments are fake. But we now have all the capabilities to do this. And so now it's only a matter of time, in my opinion, until the closed platforms like Instagram, TikTok, etc., will suffer the same fate that the open web has already suffered. Here's the problem though. On the open web, you have an open playing field. Like you have companies like Pinterest or companies like Reddit and so on, right? And everybody is creating their own discovery mechanisms, discovery engines. Reddit is a great example. I know a lot of people, and there's been a lot of blog posts about this too, how humans have started to type plus Reddit into the URL search bar on Google because they want to have a better result. They want to have a human result. Uh, I think that's super fascinating because Reddit seems to be much better at highlighting things or discovering things that humans create for other humans than the average web search. The problem is on social media, on a closed platform like Instagram, the only company that can solve for this is Instagram. You know, because it's not open, nobody else can build discovery engines. Nobody else can just take that knowledge graph that Instagram has and make it crawlable in ways that are future-proof for the world of AI. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know, that keeps me up every night. And I just worry what will happen in the next couple of months. Absolutely. No, it's interesting when you say, first of all, about Reddit. I find myself also doing that sometimes. Um, it might be a, a rabbit hole also because you get into a subreddit. Uh, there is a discussion that has 600 comments and maybe you, you started asking yourself a question and then you get to another place totally, you know, because you start getting into that. So, but I, I hear you like it's uh, real people are talking about something that is not necessarily SEO oriented as it might be an article that you find on Google that might not give you the right solution, but it is optimized, right, for, for SEO. Uh, I'm noticing that, especially now, also, like um, there are a lot of these tools that that can give you the, you know, already, I would say the points, a score out of a 100 on how SEO is optimized. Again, maybe really optimized for that doesn't mean that it gives you anything new, for example. Because if you start spinning content, right, if you always just get the same content over and over and over, I mean, AI, especially with just, chat gpt is using data from 2021 so already like if you're doing anything that has to be let's say in the creator economy you will still only talk about things that happened like one one plus year ago right already so that is already something i would say so for the maybe evergreen articles it makes sense but something that is really niche uh, oriented it's already a sort of challenge and then yes i'm noticing that uh, no one is really with this type of article giving out um something that is new it's already something that was written by someone else because it's just scraping the internet, right? So there is no real innovation. And also I think that uh, there is a lot of content going out and doesn't mean necessarily there is enough people to read that, right? So I'm, I'm feeling that for one person, we are now having thousands of content that are kind of the same, that not give values. And a lot of these content, pretty sure they are not even read by a single person. I have this feeling like in a curve, you know, before maybe it was a better ratio between content out and people reading that, but because now it's so easy. Do we have the same feeling or, or not? Totally, right? And I think that's the problem though, because if you think about like thousands of new articles launching on some platform versus like mm -hmm. 
five on a platform. The problem with that is that the humans get drowned out. If you're competing in your niche against a thousand AI bots that create very similar content, how do you how do you change the discovery algorithms, like the feed algorithms, to highlight the human content? And is that even something that we should do? Uh, I would argue probably yes, but you know, it's a different question. So for instance, the TikTok algorithm, right? I mean, the TikTok algorithm, everybody raves about it as a new way as a creator to, to get views because it seems to be very fair, right? So as a creator, you can create a short form video and then they test your video with a couple thousand of views. So they, they put a bunch of people, a bunch, bunch of random eyeballs onto the video to see does this video stick or not. And so they give everybody a fair chance. YouTube works very differently un, unless you're talking about YouTube shorts, right? But generally YouTube works differently. You have to really earn it. Um, but on TikTok, everybody can succeed even with zero mm -hmm. followers. Now here's the problem though. That works because to your point right now, the demand for consumption on TikTok is a lot higher than the supply. But imagine if it was one-on-one -on -one. And you had the equal amount of videos launching than the people wanting to consume them. Now, because you have to test every video with that algorithm, you know, putting a couple thousand views on it, that means that your For You page on TikTok will just show random, random videos from now. And so the whole, the whole algorithm just wouldn't work anymore. Uh, so, so yeah, you're totally right. I mean, I think that that would end up being a really interesting problem mm -hmm. that would have to be solved. Absolutely. And since now we said that it's more advanced than what we thought on the AI and we talked about, you know, content creation and so on, then let me ask you, where are we in the phase of the creator economy instead? Because uh, again, it is a world, it is a thing that up until a few years ago, first of all, was not really defined as it is now and still up to now, depending on the reporter, depending on the company, also similar to social commerce, creator economy also is defined in a different way. There are numbers online, um, you know, talking about who is a, is a content creator and what does include a creator economy, right? Again, it could be from, uh, of course, like social media influencers, but also, you know, we have podcasters, we have people writing uh, newsletters. There, there is so much, right, in the creator economy. And apart from that, now there are new platforms that help, for example, content creators in managing their finances or how to organize their, you know, like schedule during the month, how to better optimize their brand deals. There are some others that, you know, give you maybe the opportunity to um, optimize also like your balance between like, you know, life and, and, and business. Again, there is, there is a plethora of new things out there. So where are we now? Is it the infancy? Are we already in the middle of it? What do you think about it? Well, I'm not sure whether it's in the infancy or the middle or at the end, um, but I, I am pretty sure that it will change pretty dramatically going forward. And for instance, uh, a year or two ago, mm -hmm. I was pretty bullish about the emergence of a creator middle class. I thought, you know, we'll have all these creators that will get a small but sizable audience and a bunch of followers, and that's okay, right? Because there's a kind of even distribution across the board. I'm not so sure anymore, to be honest. I think going forward, the, the big creators probably don't have to fear a lot. They will use AI mm. to supplement what they're already doing. They will use creation tools that make them even stronger and they will build out their brand even further, right? So I don't think Mr. Beast has to worry tomorrow for AI replacing him. I think on the lower end of the spectrum or more specific, specific end maybe, there are all these niche creators. And so for instance, Patreon uh, has a large body of niche creators that are doing exceptionally well on Patreon because 
there are topics that are not covered by you know the general public, newspapers, whatever, because they're too niche. Um, and interestingly, with the audiences, for those creators, the audiences are actually much more loyal because they figured, oh, wow, that person really understands me. They really know me. They know exactly the thing that I want, right? That could be miniature trains. That could be anything, right? Um, and I think that will also continue to exist um, and flourish. And then the third one is any type of creation that involves human connection because that's one thing AI is just simply not very good at. Like AI cannot replace human connection. Uh, for instance, humor. AI is notoriously bad at humor. I mean, if you ever tried, you know, to generate something funny with ChatGPT, it's usually pretty horrible. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's not that. And yet. you know what? You should try also try using voice synthesis, like in the script or some other software, and try to make it laugh. Mm -hmm. Like it's pretty bad. It's robotic. It's still robotic. Yeah. Like you can. But you why can is it so it. bad? Yeah. Because if you think about it, humor depends on human connection, right? The the best comedians. Mm -hmm. connect to humans in ways that software just cannot. I mean, they like, they understand the zeitgeist. They understand the worries and troubles of everyday humans. They, they sometimes make jokes that hurt, um, but, but still make you laugh, right? Because they, they really connect to your soul. Um, and so I think that's something, that's just one example. Um, there are probably many examples of channels and uh, types of genres that are uniquely human that AI will have a very hard time recreating, I would say. Yeah, there are so many sub-layers sometimes to a joke that a comedian is saying that in order to make it and to understand it, you have to know maybe about what is happening in the world, what is happening in a specific city, um, you know, the type of audience that you have in front of you. If there is a something that happened just that day, for example, if there is a reference to a song, similar to like a TikTok video, if you, sh if you show a Gen Z like video to someone that is like maybe a boomer, like they are missing completely that because there are so many references and sub-references, right? And, and that's why, yeah, I do agree. I mean, like, you know, AI can only generate on things, uh, but when there are like deep level of understanding between humans, uh, it is where, where, where it's missing. So, and to start wrapping up on this, is there anything else that uh, we left out or the, I didn't ask you today that you are either really excited to, to talk about or even something that you're like, you know, potentially bullish on, on the next future could be the web, could be creator economy, social commerce. Uh, what, what did I ask you, if, if any? I don't know. I think we covered a lot of ground, but, you know, I'm actually personally quite excited about uh, being on top of the AI wave, the way, right way to describe it. But like, you know, AI is either, either going to drown a lot of creators or it's going to support some, right? And, uh, and I'm quite interested in building the right generation of tools that use AI and accelerate creators in ways that maybe we don't understand yet. There's a, a lot of potential there. That's personally what I'm very excited about. Like, how can we change the, the life of a creator to a point where they can focus on the most enjoyable part of creation, right? They can focus on ideation maybe, or uh, bringing their own unique voice as opposed to editing and you know script reviews and research and you know, I mean, everybody has different ideas of what they enjoy, of course. I mean, Mark Rober, for instance, that famously edits his own videos. But I think that's, to me, that is what makes me very excited to see, like, maybe we can create a world, not just in the creator economy, but a world where with any kind of creative job, uh, it would be, become more pleasurable, like more interesting to do that job, to perform that job, because you can personalize which aspect of the job you like, you like to do yourself. 
uh, I think that's quite interesting. Absolutely. I'm curious to see if that happens. And it will also, as you said, can expand apart, like, you know, just not the creator economy, but also the everyone on the internet. And maybe who knows, even outside the internet, like, you know, getting to combining together the, the, the digital world and the real world somehow. So I'm really curious to see that. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I can see that you are not just like, you know, knowledgeable about things, but you are passionate about these topics. So Definitely. thank you so much for sharing that knowledge with, with us. This was the Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory, and I'll see you in the next episode.